This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, welcome to another edition of Holding Court. It's Patrick McEnroe here, and I am so happy today to be joined by uh, one of the most popular personalities in all of Australia for so many years. Of course, I've gone there every year for many, many years to cover the Australian Open. In fact, it's the last country I've been to in the year of 2020, which is very unusual considering I'm usually following the tennis tour all over the world. In fact, Wimbledon would be going on as we speak, but instead I have the opportunity to speak to her. It's Magna Zubanski, who uh, is famous all throughout Australia and the world for her her comedy, her acting, her activism, and she has been kind enough to join me here from Down Under. How are you today, Magna? I'm very good, thank you, Patrick. It's the most beautiful, um, we're in autumn or spring or winter, I don't know, whatever it is. It's one of those glorious, chilly but beautiful days down here in Melbourne, Australia. Chilly, chilly for you, but not for those of us that live in this part of the world and in the New York area. Now, how have you, and I know Australia has done an unbelievable job with this COVID-19 virus and in controlling it. How has it affected what's been going on in your city and your country for the last couple of months? Um, Look, we have been very fortunate. We're a really quite a law-abiding, compliant nation, Australia. Um, and um, uh, there was pretty decisive uh, action. We're also lucky in that we're, we're reasonably, we're a continent, we're not just a country, we're a continent, and we're quite sparsely populated. I'm sure that helps, although Melbourne and Sydney have very large populations, like four and a half million, so it's sizable. There's been a recent resurgence, a second wave, um, partly due to better testing. Um, so, but, but some of the states are really opening up in Australia and, and that COVID tree, so... You know, uh, we're in a really pretty good position along with New Zealand um, and and really we've had a very, very small death toll, like a very small, it's like 100 or something, mm. you know, so, so hard, yeah, incredibly small death toll. Well, you are, you are so well-known throughout Australia, not only, as I said, for your great acting, your comedy, you've been in just countless TV shows and films throughout, throughout your career there, but you've also, you're, you're also so highly respected just as an individual, as a human being, for multiple reasons, which, which I hope we'll have time to get into. As I said to you just before we came on, there, there, there's a lot of avenues, there's a lot of roads we could go with you. Of course, I want to get at some point into your tennis, uh, Magda, because I know You've got a background there, yes. but but how do you all in Australia look at what's happening in our country? Because you said you're a law-abiding country in Australia. In the United States of America, we're seeing some uh, little different, uh, I guess, opinions of what law-abiding means. So how do you look at it from afar? I've got to say, um, you know, a lot of us have friends, family in, um, in the U.S., and we're really worried for you. You know, it is it just seems it's in such a spiral and, um, you know, there's no leadership from the top. Um, I mean, uh, the the parties in Australia, the opposing parties, have managed to actually come together and collaborate mm. to form um, a policy and an and, and action, you know. And it's just, it's heartbreaking, actually, watching what's going on in the US. It's seems to be sort of tearing itself. You said the country seems to be tearing itself apart. And, you know, it's, it's, um, 
we all just really hope that whatever we've got right here, that some of those lessons might translate back across the Pacific to you guys. That you know, there might be something something helpful that you can learn from that. But how does it feel for you within it, being in it? Well, it's uh, it's definitely surreal, and uh, you know, I actually lived through the virus myself, so I was one of the first people. Uh, in, in, my, in our part of the country, in New York, where we were in the epicenter early on in March, so in mid-March, I came down with it. I've, I'm actually talking to you still from... Oh, you had it. I did, yeah. I, got, I caught the virus in uh, mid-March, so I was in quarantine. We were already in quarantine, myself and my wife and our three daughters here in our, in our suburban community outside of New York City, so we'd all sort of gone into lockdown mode, and after a couple of days of not feeling that great, Magda, I said to my wife after dinner mm-hmm. one night... I said, you know, I said, I've been kind of tired and achy for a couple of nights, a little weird. I said, I think I should take my temperature. So sure enough, I took my temperature and I had a fever. And uh, right away, my wife looked at me and said, basement, you go. You know, we kind of had this somewhat of a plan to put some, one of us, if it happened, into the basement. So that, that happened. I was here for, a, I was, all in told, I was here for about a month in, you know, total quarantine by myself. I was able to get outside wow. periodically. Uh, and luckily, I never had severe symptoms. So it was never the point where I was, you know, sort of worried or in, in danger health-wise. But uh, what a wake-up call. And, and unfortunately, it seems to be, now the epicenter has moved to you know different parts of the country. It's actually very much under control here now in this area, but uh, a bit scary to say the least, Magda. And I think the fact is that most people, even experts that I've spoken to, just don't quite really know why or where or how this thing is go- is is going to go. Yeah, I mean that that uncertainty is. Um, I think everyone's feeling that it's a very weird time in the world. And and the guy who lives next, lives next door to me, he's British, and his father died of it in in mm. the UK. And of course, he couldn't even go over and be at the funeral. So, but he's in a weird situation because he's experiencing a grief that sort of no one else or very few people in this country are feeling. So it's causing real divides. I mean. Some people are kind of like me. I'm kind of, you know, the lockdown's fine. I work from home anyway. I'm writing, right. but other people are having, you know, hell, hell on earth. Well, you wrote you wrote a book. Let's um, <clears throat> let's talk. Excuse me. Let's talk a little bit about that, Magda, because you wrote a, a book that just won all sorts of awards called the called Reckoning, your memoir, uh, about five years ago. And as you said, I know you've been working on it. I've seen some of your interviews you've been doing while in lockdown these last few months. So. Give, give our audience here a little bit of an insight into what that book's about and what you're working on now because it's just absolutely fascinating what you've gone through, your life story, where you're at now, and then we'll get into the tennis part because that's supposed to be what holding court is about, <laughs> but there's so much more to discuss with you. So please tell us a little bit about that, uh, that, that book you wrote. Well, as I say, the tennis is really appropriate. As I say in the book, there's sort of an arena in what in which lots of families are defined, and ours is actually tennis. So, for people who don't know me, um, they probably would know me um, from the film Babe, actually, where I play Mrs. Hoggett, the farmer's wife, mm-hmm. you know, with the talking pig. That's that's probably where I'm best known internationally, um, and in Australia. And also, some people might recognise me as a character in I did a film with the crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, right. Um, and so I'm known for, I'm known for sort of quite lighthearted stuff. And then the first sentence of my memoir, Reckoning, is 
if you had ever met my father, you would never for an instant have thought he was an assassin. And it proceeds from there because my mm. father, Zbigniew Szubanski, mm-hmm. uh, or as everyone called him, Peter, um, was recruited at the age of 19 to be an assassin in a top-secret counterintelligence unit in Warsaw in Poland. Um, they were very few people. They knew broadly of the existence of these units, but very few people knew the specifics. They were directly answerable to the head of the Polish underground, Borkomorowski, um, and their job was to uh, execute collaborators. So he was he was um, recruited into that by his brother-in-law, my uncle, um, and um, they, you know, so basically they what they would do is they had this whole system, these underground courts. Um, so there was proper proper um, uh, judicial process where the collaborators and these collaborators, so that people understand, were people who were collaborating with the Gestapo, um, who were giving the Gestapo information about the Polish resistance, but were also telling the Gestapo where Jewish people were hiding. Mm. And to background this a bit further, my entire family, including my father, were also hiding Jewish people throughout the war. So my grandparents, my aunt, my uncle, my, my father, um, hid and assisted Jewish people all throughout the war. So their job was to execute these collaborators, um, mm-hmm. but it's hardcore, you know. Um, and oh, that's really hardcore, yeah. It's so hardcore, and... and the sort of roll-on effects of that, the sort of complicated trauma and intergenerational trauma and the moral trauma of mm. that is really what the book's about. And and when so, when, um, when when did yeah, you find when did you find out, Magna, that your dad was an assassin? Um, look, I would have been in my late teens, and as we were saying before, it it sounds absolutely surreal. I mean, I've actually seen the archives at the Uprising Museum in Poland, like that. You know, they they have all the details of the. He was an officer in this unit, so it's all properly catalogued and archived. And and um, but it it, it seems surreal even to me because that experience of total war. I think we can almost get a sense more now because of what we're going through with COVID, mm-hmm. of what the disintegration of a society feels like. Mm. Um, but you know, in, when we ca- when we came to Australia in the sixties. It was such a peaceful country comparatively that that surreal experience was hard to understand. But I would have been in my late teens probably when I actually heard the word or whatever. Um, but I certainly felt <laughs> that the vibe. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> pretty, in, pretty. Must have been a pretty that, intense that vibe. Right. right. I thought. I thought it was. I thought it was an intense vibe oh, being John McEnroe's little brother. You know, right? like with his intensity. <laughs> But this is a different level. So, okay, so your mom was Scottish. Yeah. Your dad obviously had um, sort of escaped and, and then had this other personality from, from Poland, yeah. the, the, the Nazis in World War II. You, the, your parents meet, get married. You were born in, in Liverpool in England. Um, did you spend yeah. your years at that point in – where did you spend your years before you went to Australia? Uh, so the first five years of my life were spent in Liverpool. In Liverpool, okay. And then, um, so my, yeah, so my, my brother's eight years older than me and my sister's 10 years older than me. So we had a very sort of um, British culture in my family, even when we migrated here. And my father was a massive Anglophile. You know, he just mm. loved the Brits. And he just wanted to really, he married out, as the Pole said. He didn't marry another Pole. He married a Scot. Right. Um, but my, it was very common. My, my mother's 
um, other sister married a Pole, and the other sister married a Hungarian. So there's there's, there's, a, there's a long history of connection um, between Poland and the UK, and particularly Scotland. I won't go into that, but um, yeah. And then, and then in 1965, we migrated to Australia. Um, my father worked for ICI, and um, he was a, a textile tech, sort of like a textile chemist, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so we ended up here, and and then um, very very quickly, we were going to Kuyong and. <laughs> I think if I say to people the phrase Eastern European father right. tennis coach okay. and then yeah. add assassin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would, you know, because I come across, yeah I, I, yeah, I come across quite a few of those, Magna, in my, in, in my world, in the tennis world, here in, especially here in the New York area. And my, one of my daughters is actually a pretty good competitive tennis player. So I come across uh, quite a few Eastern Europeans uh, that have come to the U.S. And uh, that go and play tennis and have uh, pretty intense parents. Now, I don't think any of them are assassins, <laughs> so I can imagine it's a slightly different level. Okay, so I come across in my research with you, and just to put uh, a few more things on the table, one of my great friends in Australia, a great couple that I know, Rob Sitch uh, and his wife Jane, uh, are also comedians, writers, producers, like you are, Magda, and I know you have a long history with them, so that's how... I got connected to you through Jane, who now own, uh, has her own uh, very popular radio show, national radio show in Australia. So um, I somehow came across a picture of you in an Australian newspaper. I don't, maybe you were 11, 12 years old. Uh, and there you were. Yeah, I was 11. You were 11 playing in a tennis tournament. So uh, please explain, Magna. Okay, so quite bizarrely, um, I was there was the school boys and school girls championships at Kuyong, and I was I used to play in all the tournaments when I was a kid. So my father taught himself pretty much to play tennis and was tennis mad. So mm. all weekend, every weekend, it was you know just tennis, tennis, tennis. And I played in this tournament, and I was actually not playing a serious game. And there was a myth that was going around. Someone was just saying to it to me a few minutes ago that I was a champion tennis player and I kept trying to debunk it because I wasn't. I wasn't bad, but I right. was not a champion. But I was having a hit with one of the other girls on the backcourt and I, I did, there was a photographer just wandering around and he's taking pictures and he took one and me doing, I'm pretty good. I had good form. Yeah, very good. Yeah, you had very good form. You're a backhand vial. Like, it's, like a, it's like a great old Aussie Australian great. I thought it was like Lou Hode or something there. By the way, Koo Young, just for people that I mean, the tennis Koo fans, Koo Young, the tennis fans will know. This is where a famous uh, tennis club just outside Melbourne where the Australian Open was played for many, many years until it moved to Melbourne Park, which now is where Rod Laver Arena is, et cetera. So it was a, it's super famous. It's a little bit like our West Side Tennis Club here, Magda, in New York, which was the home for many years of the U.S. Open, you know, one of those old-school, fancy, private clubs with the grass courts, et cetera. So, Koo Young, yeah. you, were, you were there mm-hmm. playing on, I'm assuming, the grass courts, right? Yeah, at the back court. And we used to go to the, um, the Australian Open Every day, every year. I'm sure your brother would have played there. Well, he would have played yeah. at Kuyong, yeah, not, 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 Melbourne, not Melbourne Park, I think. Believe it, um, or, not, believe, not yeah, um, b- believe it or not, Magda, in those days, okay, the Australian Open wasn't 
even considered a major by a lot of the top players because it used to be played over Christmas time. So it was, it was actually the fourth yeah. major of the year. It was the last one. Now, of course, it's in January. They've moved it to Melbourne Park. And, and my brother and a lot of the top players in those years didn't even go to Australia to play the Australian. My brother never played oh, at right. Young, nor did Bjorn Borg. Uh, Vilas won it a couple of times. I'm talking about just, just to the men's side because that's what comes to my mind. I know Chris Everett, who I know well, went there late in her career and played, and my brother played yeah. when they moved it to Melbourne Park, so it didn't quite have the prestige right. internationally that it has today. Yeah, it was it was sort of struggling, and I think they increased the prize money, and they made a few, you yes. know, really astute changes to it. Um, but I remember seeing, like, John Newton there, and Tony Roach, and, and um, Yvonne Gourdong, as she was then, and, and Margaret Court all playing, because that was sort of the heyday of Australian players in terms of the really great um, Aussie Absolutely. players yeah. and champions. Well, now, now, that, now that you brought... Mm. Now it's, that, a be- it's a beautiful club. It's a gorgeous club. And now that you, you just brought it up, I'm gonna, I hadn't even thought about this, but I should ask you this, because in, in your book um, prompted you to also come out as a gay person, which, had, which had, you mentioned, and you, I've seen your interviews, it was difficult for you to come out. Now, the Margaret Court situation is obviously been controversial in the tennis world, particularly this past year when Martina Navratilova got up and did, did sort of her version of a protest of the Margaret Court Arena. My brother actually joined her. So I would be very interested to hear your take on that situation in Australia, the fact that Margaret Court, who's come out sort of against, quote-unquote, gay, gay people and, and you know, using her religious background to sort of defend that, how, where do you come down to that? Because you're is so highly respected in Australia and the world for your position and what you've done for the gay rights movement and the and the and the marriage movement, um, same sex marriage movement in your country as well. It's a really difficult one because the moment you tell people that they can't do something or have something, they kind of want to have it. It's that perverse psychology of humans. So. Um, uh, And and it's also that big debate about, um, you know, with artists or sports people, how much uh, is it just about the activities that they're engaged in and how Mm -hmm. much is it their extracurricular activities? To a certain extent, I think give her enough rope because she says so many crazy things. Mm -hmm. um, And there's a – we're not a – we're a very secular country, Australia. Um, We're much less sort of religious – than than um, than America is, um, and so she's kind of she sort of doesn't have much credibility. Um, and there's a whole thing about monuments at the moment, um, and I'm probably more one for um, keep that monument but contextualise it. Mm-hmm. So you might keep it as the Margaret Court Arena, but what you would do is actually have a bit about. Um, you know, have stuff around that mm-hmm. that gives it a context that um, explains the controversy because, um, you know, she is a part of that history and and I just think it can often backfire when you... Uh, but that said, really appreciated the support from your brother and, and of course, Martina is an amazing campaigner. Yes. Um, but I think it's a, we're, we're at this incredible moment in history 
where I'm a, I'm a real believer that you, you have to be accurate and tell as much truth about history so that you're as well informed as you can possibly be. And you, you need to, you have to start with the right, right premise, otherwise you end up with the wrong conclusion. And you have to have all of the right information so that you make the right analysis of what happened so that in the future you don't repeat the mistake. Um, so I'm all for the context, really. Um, and then I think people learn best when they're provoked to think. So mm-hmm. if you have something about Margaret Court there, plus the context around it, then people can engage with that and make their own conclusions about it. Um, and so I think that that rather than um, imposing that on it, I mean, I, I don't personally, I, I don't like at all that that um, the the arena is named after her. I would much rather it was named after Yvonne Corley, mm-hmm. um, but. It is named after her. She is, you know, probably one of our greatest tennis players. And um, let's do something around that that actually provokes meaningful, intelligent engagement with the issue. Because I think people learn and change and grow much more through that than the banning and banishing of things. You're just far too rational and reasonable and smart, Magna, to be uh, heard in this country. I mean, the way things are going here, but that is a unbelievable take and uh thank you for that because that's so well thought and coming coming from a gay person who's had to deal with all the issues you've had to deal with particularly in your world in the comedy world you know i saw an interview you did um as well where some i think there were american guys on some some american show were saying that uh you know women can't be funny and can't be comedians in the same in the same way that men can so you put yourself out there and uh it's uh, it's inspiring to be to be honest with you to hear you speak and I'm I'm so grateful that you've uh, come on with me. So the tennis side of it, oh, uh, yeah, with your with your dad. Can I, can I just add one? Can please, I, you can add anything can I you want. One thing? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, yeah, a lot of that comes from my father because mm-hmm. my father, um, you know, he fought in the Warsaw Uprising. He um, he hated what was happening to Jewish people. That was part of why he started what he was doing. He had a lot of Jewish friends that he couldn't stand what was happening to the Jews. He was then cattle trucked out of Warsaw for three days with pneumonia and his family, the rest of his family were cattle trucked south to Krakow. He was sent to a POW camp. Uh, he eventually made his way out of there. But my, he always brought me up. He said there were good Poles and bad Poles, good Germans and bad Germans, good mm. Jews and bad Jews. And who's to say you don't know, you know, so, so it, to me, it's, it's almost like an article of faith and the point of view that I always come from. Um, and having, knowing a bit of that, as I do about Polish history, the importance of being able to not just fight your corner. Um, and very much when I came out, it was about that. It was about, we can, we can all, feel righteous and good about ourselves. Um, but being able to cope with the fact that you're not as good a person as you think you are mm. is the first, is the starting point, that mm-hmm. sort of level of honesty. And my father was an incredibly honest person. He went through a real moral trauma doing what he did, even though he was on the right side. Right. Um, you know, you can't be a good person and kill people, you know. So um, he was really... You know, he was a, a sophisticated human being and a, and, and a good person, although I don't think he ever thought he was. And that, again, is the moral trauma that people, particularly veterans who are returning. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the moment I'm engaged with um, 
raising money for, 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 for trauma to help mental health issues arising from the terrible bushfires we had here. And, and we're working with um, um, people who work with the Def- Department of Defence and ex-Army veterans with PTSD. So that's a real, that's my jam. That's the sort of stuff I'm very interested in. Yeah, well, you're interested in a lot of things. And uh, it's, as I said, <laughs> in, inspiring, Magda, to speak to you and hear you, hear you talk and be able to have you on my podcast. And I'm, I'm so appreciative. Did your dad get into tennis once he, when he moved to Australia? No, he got into t- to tennis in the UK. Okay. Um, and, it, 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 you know, he, he really was an Anglophile and it's such an English, along with cricket, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 where did tennis start? Uh, it started in France. You know, but it was apparently like one of the, right. the courts of, uh, you know, one of the one of the uh, kings, Louis, or you know, Louis, I, I should know this, by the way. So you're just calling me out, man. You just you just <laughs> showed my audience what a fraud I am. Okay, uh, but it started in England as sort of a, 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 I mean, in France as a as a sort of a, a an activity for the kings to do and for the you know the super rich and the super elite, which is still kind of following tennis in some ways today, which is part of its challenge, at least in, in this country. In Australia, you know, it's one of the more popular sports along, obviously, with, with Aussie rules and cricket, et, et, et cetera. In, in America, it struggles a little bit with the other sports. In, in European countries, like in Poland and Eastern Europe, you know, it's arguably second or third most popular sport. So that's, uh, it, it, that, that's sort of... Uh, it sort of follows tennis that as an upper class kind of sport, which um, certainly hurts the image of it in this country. I think more so than in in parts of Europe where it's just, you know you know you go to you go to France or you go to Spain and it's almost it's maybe more of a middle class sport where you go to your club and you can play soccer or tennis. And I think my my sense of Australia is that's a it's a little bit like that. As well, it's not quite as working class as maybe footy is, Australian rules football, but uh, it, it's not seen maybe as quite as elite in Australia as it is in, in in the United States. But I think fairly similar with the you know like Kuyong is a good example, sort of a you know nice club. But but you grew up th- in that area, right? So that wasn't was that known as a club that was no, for the I, super. I, it was sort of like a regular local club, right? Well, it was, I mean, I grew up in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. We were sort of lower middle class probably mm-hmm. family. I mean, my mother worked in on an assembly line. Um, so we weren't in a factory, you know. So we weren't like a really wealthy family at all. Um, my father certainly didn't get his interest in tennis from Europe. Um, he grew up skiing. In fact, the, the big sport in, in Europe, his father was a Greco, this, how gay is this, a Greco-Roman wrestling Coach, mm. and he was he was quite a, a he was a, a Greco-Roman wrestler at quite a high level, but um, it was in in Britain that my father really developed the interest in tennis, and there weren't a lot of Eastern European tennis players for a very long time. I mean, now they're everywhere. But yeah, when yeah, I was right. Young, in, in, um, when you were young, and in those days, they weren't allowed to leave their their country. Yeah, but I don't think it was even a big sport in the country, mm-hmm. and then it became a ticket out of there in a lot of ways. Right. I think, and that and that sort of changed everything. But um, it's it's certainly um, it's appeal for dad. I think it's appeal for him was twofold. It's it's one of those really tucker English kind of sports, right? And also it was a way he could vent vent his 
the killer instinct. Yeah, in right. Instinct. Exactly. Well, they <laughs> say, yeah, they say some, you know, great tennis. You know, we say it sort of tongue in cheek, right? This great tennis player. The guy's an assassin, right? As it, no, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't mean it literally. Obviously, it did for your dad. <laughs> yeah, and, and he told me when I was about nine that I lacked killer instinct. Mm. And I think I was partly relieved because he, <laughs> he had it. You know, he would, he, he was all saying to me, you have no killer instinct. You can't finish off your opponent, you know, because I would feel sorry for my opponent. Right, right, right. And I'd let them get right. back a bit. And then, of course, and then they'd beat me, you know. <laughs> right. Oh, that's unbelievable. Wow. Magda, I got to tell you, I told you I'd, I'd, I'd go 20 to 25 minutes. This has flown by. We've already done just about 30, and we could, I'm sure, easily do 30 more, but I know you want to get on with your day there in Melbourne. I so, so appreciate you doing this. And um, lo and behold, if this whole thing you know, comes to pass, which we hope it will in the not-too-distant future, I plan on looking you up when I get back because that's my favorite trip of the year, Magda, to go to Melbourne. I get to see Rob and Jane, my good buddies. I know you know them well, too. They're great, great people. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting oh, you. Are, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you face-to-face as well. And uh, you, what you've done in Australia oh, yeah. for so many different things has been just absolutely amazing. And, and, and it's been great for me to learn more about what you've done in your life. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it's 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 great to have this opportunity. Now, I would absolutely love to meet you. We must make that happen. Absolutely. And and by the way, we're going to get out on the tennis court too, okay? Because I want to see that back end volley. Because that <laughs> thing is like that's like a t- out of a out of a textbook right there, Magna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's my father. He taught himself by reading textbooks. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. The the, the 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 tennis assassin and, and Magna, you keep doing what you're doing, changing the world day by day. And uh, I appreciate you so much coming on with me. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Magna. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.